name's Barry. I'm a psychotherapist at the site for Contemporary Psychoanalysis and um, discussing her recent book published this year, Psychoanalysis and Class Everywhere and Nowhere, is... Uh, <laughs> it's Landscapes of Inequality. Landscapes they of Inequality. They didn't let me have everywhere and nowhere. Oh, dear, that's a shame. <laughs> it's Joanna Ryan, um, who's also a member of, of the site, and um, Jo has been noted for her work raising um, probing questions about psychoanalysis and its relation to broader social and political issues. And she's following that up, um, asking very pertinent questions in um, our contemporary moments about um, the relationship of psychoanalysis and class. I think we would like, to, what's going to happen is um, Joe's going to talk for about 30 minutes or so, and then we, we want to leave as much time for discussion from the floor uh, about this topic. So we really want this to be an invitation to um, broader thinking and debate. This is a starting off point, really. Um, so maybe we could be begin this evening, Joe. I just mm -hmm. could ask you um, what it is that brought you to, to write this book, to become interested in, in the topic in the first place. Right. Uh, well, many things, really. But ever, ever since my earliest childhood, I've been um, very concerned, if not troubled, by the possibilities for intimacy within cross-class relationships where there's a large class difference. Um, this is something that originated in my childhood but has continued um, the constraints and also the possibilities of that. Um, broadly speaking, I've always been involved in left-wing politics and um, uh, when I qualified as psychotherapist, I was, as many people are, very disappointed to find that uh, there are very few funded jobs and that private practice is um, the way that most therapists have to make their living, um, though they may do other things in different uh, contexts. Um, in t uh, but um, I did work for some um, free and low-cost um, psychotherapy clinics uh, in, the, in the inner city, quite a few different ones and also have had quite a lot of experience supervising in those places. And so I gradually became more and more alert to the way that class was very present, but actually there was very little discussion about it. Um, so I decided um, to just do a very exploratory research, um, a little research topic, a study, um, to find out what therapists actually thought and how class came up in therapy relationships and... Uh, what they made of that, um, and that produced enormous a wealth of material. Um, so I then uh, read around a lot to see what there was in the literature, and realised that if I was going to be able to say anything about class, um, I also had to take on board the massive sum—not obviously not all—but the, the massive amount of work that is done within sociology and psychosocial studies about class, um, in great contrast to its absence within psychoanalysis. So, like Barry said, I'm going to um, read a, a paper for, I hope, about 30 minutes. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, do, I do absolutely... It, it, I see this book very much as opening up a discussion uh, and a debate. Um, and where that goes is, you know, can go in very many different directions. OK. Class is a highly contested concept... Um, uh, can everyone at the back hear me okay? Yeah. Since the 80s of the last century, it largely disappeared from political and academic debate, 
was the supposed era of the classless society. This, proclaimed by both John Major and Tony Blair, was part of the neoliberal agenda instituted by Thatcher and continuing now. An agenda in which many social issues and problems are falsely seen as only a matter of individual behaviour and responsibility. But of course class and class inequalities hadn't and hasn't and they haven't disappeared from people's lives. According to most measures, um, socio-economic inequality has increased and social mobility has flatlined. There are now signs that class is once again a topic of concern in wider political debates about inequalities and also within certain strands of sociology and psychosocial studies, many of which I have drawn on as a framework. This recent uh, uh, interest um, includes the work of someone called Diane Ray, um, whose research some of you may have seen. um, There's a page-long feature about it in Yesterday's Guardian. Um, she, she researched over a long, many years working class children's experiences in education and what's particularly relevant here, though it doesn't appear in that article um, is that Diane Ray is one of um, the um, writers though she's a sociologist who, who feels a need to use psychoanalytic concepts um, to understand what she calls the psychic economy of class to, to um, deepen and extend that the findings she got from her sociological work. When I developed private practice in the 80s and 90s, I was struck by how many of my then patients had a history of considerable social mobility from working-class family origins into more middle-class occupations and cultures. There were many stories here, all different, but all involving considerable pain, loss, conflict, and struggle in surmounting many barriers. There was also often guilt, in some cases amounting to trauma. Many felt torn apart internally, as well as torn away from their families of origin by the huge differences that ensued economically and culturally with their upward mobility. This resulted in a very divided sense of self that could take much psychic work to eventually engender a livable position. There were accounts of huge (coughs) ambivalence about success, that in some cases led to abandoning it all or undermining it or endangering hard-won financial security. There were also stories of desires and strivings for a different life and some pleasure and pride as well. All these stories were, of course, entwined with different family constellations and libidinal histories. I, probably like many therapists, then at that time saw the conflicts that each patient experienced in moving class very much in individual terms, that is, in terms of each person's particular history and family dynamics, which was probably useful as, uh, as far as it went. But I came to see that this didn't go far enough. I was trying some, somewhat reductively to apply psychoanalytic ideas to class experience, not really appreciating the far-reaching and lasting impact of the materiality of class, whatever the overt changes, and the inner dividedness Um, as well as external ones that class can create within within and between ourselves. Indeed, one patient at a difficult point in his therapy angrily accused me of just this. He said that I was too upper class to understand him or anything else about class and I reduced everything to personal and familial issues. And he also said there was no other perspective possible than that of psychoanalysis within the therapy he meant. That is, the specificity of the determining power of class experience per se, 
and the conflicts of this, mine as well as his, lacked sufficient articulation and recognition in this cross-class encounter. I was very thrown by this, uh, paralysed, ashamed of my relative privilege, and unable to think usefully about what this arousal of emotion in me could mean. As also with another patient, um, who felt angrily at one point that I wouldn't be able to understand her because of the gulf between our respective positions as she saw them. However, eventually, in both cases, we found our way through this. Um, I now want to turn to some more conceptual and theoretical issues um, as regards the conjunction of class and psychoanalysis before returning uh, a bit more to clinical matters. I will say that what I'm trying to do here in this talk is to give a somewhat condensed overview uh, of some of the many things that I do touch on in my book, but um, I do acknowledge that this is somewhat abbreviated. In what follows, I'm partly advancing a critique, but, uh, but it is important to say, a critique of psychoanalysis, that is, but it's important to say it is a critique based on a long-standing commitment to the value of psychoanalysis, in the sense of the importance rather than the values, as both practice and theory, that in its complexity, nuance and radical nature is far in advance of any other form of psychology in understanding ourselves and others. Within psychoanalysis, class is, I suggest, an absent present. What I mean by this is that it is significantly present in the economic, cultural and social resources mainly necessary to engage in the field, but largely absent from professional and clinical discussions, there but not there, everywhere and nowhere, as, uh, was my original title. Um, that is, everywhere in the structural features of our society and the location <coughs> of psychoanalysis within that, but almost nowhere in its explicit discourses. Within psychoanalysis, this absence of thinking about class is in sharp contrast to the presence of innovative and critical thinking that has arisen um, about other forms of difference, such as gender, sexuality and race which has hugely extended psychoanalytic thinking and practice, at least in some quarters. In my book, I trace the origins of what I've called the extrusion of class from psychoanalytic discourse through looking at some of Freud's case histories, dreams, and various letters to Fleece, where significant working-class figures appear descriptively, often crucial in the child's development, but then disappear from interpretation and theorization, given no place or importance. These cross-class relationships of which there are also contemporary clinical accounts, are thus disavowed, another form of there but not there, known but not known. This has left a problematic legacy in which any language of class, or indeed working class lives and experiences, barely figure in the psychoanalytic canon. Amongst other theoretical issues, this brings to the fore the issue of how we conceptualise the social world in relation to the psychoanalytic subject, that is, the psyche, a problematic that underlies all attempts to forge a more social psychoanalysis, one which can adequately encompass the social world that we're both subject to and become subjects, albeit divided ones, within. There is thus often a difficulty in knowing how to think about class within clinical contexts, indeed whether, as some have said, it feels unanalytic to do so, which is part of what I explored in my research with therapists. It turned out that they mostly all had a lot to say about class, um, whatever their class position or background, um, but had sen seldom actually had many conversations about it um, 
in professional contexts. The challenge is, um, part of the challenge is how to think psychoanalytically about the conscious and unconscious levels at which classes lived, experienced and felt about, while also sustaining an appropriate understanding or acknowledgement of class as a social force in all its materiality. There is thus a significant dearth of working-class voices within the profession, whether as patients, analysts, or psychotherapists. Um, I think this is probably beginning to be rectified a little, uh, somewhat, especially in the articulation of the experiences of those from working-class backgrounds who have themselves entered the profession with all the concomitant vicissitudes of social mobility that this entails. But um, obviously it could go very much further. This absence has also meant that the class locations and practices of psychoanalysis, often unconsciously or unthinkingly conveyed, have not for the most part been explicitly addressed from within the profession. The familiar case of the dominant, in this case mainly middle class, culture and taste being unmarked. I start from the premise that psychoanalysis cannot say anything useful about the psychic embodiments of class unless it also understands itself as part of class and acknowledges its particular class locations and implicit ideologies. I would like to distinguish three main aspects uh, of psychoanalytic concerns in relation to class, or rather class concerns in relation to psychoanalysis, perhaps I should say. These are, one, access to psychoanalytic therapy and to its trainings. Two, what we might understand about the psychic embodiments of class and how it can inflect therapy relationships. And three, as part of both of these, the internal class politics of the profession. Before saying a bit more about these, I would, however, like to make a few remarks about the frameworks I found useful in approaching class. Um, This bit is especially condensed, but I hope you will bear with me, because it flags up some of what has to be borne in mind when thinking about class and reflects some of what I've learned in writing my book. I want to hold up the complexity of class and class experience. (coughs) However however we may locate ourselves class-wise, if we do, not everyone does, there is seldom a simplicity to that. There is much to be gained by seeing class as a psychologically complex part of the self, not just as something external out there, but internalised and embodied and embedded in many different ways, and also as a dynamic part of many aspects of the psyche and of relationships. Class always intersects with other factors, race, gender, place, history, disability, and so on. This intersectionality adds greatly to its complexity, but it's not um, something I can directly uh, address here. And class is also multidimensional and hybrid. There are economic, cultural and social capitals or aspects of class which considerably complexify class ascriptions or identities. Further, class distinctions and markers, where the boundaries are drawn between different designated classes, are themselves subject to historical and social changes, as we've probably all observed. And finally, I, in this particular bit, I've also found it useful to view class as a totality, meaning that we are all part of class, albeit differently so. Class is thus always relational. There are always class others, actual and or fantasised. And it involves constant processes of... The living of it involves constant processes of distinction 
lived out in daily practices, embodiments and emotions that partly constitute us, though not entirely, as class beings. <coughs> this approach means eschewing any static or essentialist psychology of class with attributions of certain inherent characteristics in favour of looking at the living of class um, and how we become classed subjects. But whilst emphasising the relational and subjective aspects of class, it is always essential to foreground the economic and other factors involved. Um, Sometimes they tend to get um, split apart, um, but the challenge is to be able to accommodate them both. Okay, um, access to psychoanalytic therapy. Despite the radical and progressive potential of psychoanalysis, nonetheless, its existence has largely depended on expensive work in private practice. Money, though not always the only factor, um, is key in determining access to most psychoanalytic therapies and its trainings. Private practice has thus historically been the enabling condition for the development and survival of psychoanalysis, a source of all its main theories and everything that can come from long-term, intensive and open-ended clinical work. This state of affairs is a contradiction that many have wrestled with, from the historic free clinics for working-class people, founded by left-wing psychoanalysts now nearly 100 years ago, to the many similar contemporary initiatives that abound. Freud, in his 1918 speech, widely influential and still quoted now, advocated the development of free clinics. He argued that the legitimacy, viability and future of psychoanalysis depended on its wider availability, an argument which has renewed relevance now, I think. He also put forward a social justice argument that people should be entitled to help from psychoanalysis and psychotherapy, whatever their income. I show in my book how these left-wing analysts wrestled with many questions about the universality of psychoanalysis. They also discussed how what they called the social factor could be theorised within psychoanalysis, an abiding debate indeed. Fascism crushed these, crushed these innovative clinics, whose detailed history has only recently been um, written about. And after the Second World War, there was a much more conservative era in psychoanalysis, during which the canard that working-class people were not suitable for psychoanalysis, that is not sufficiently educated, not verbal enough, too concrete, etc., took hold, with a tenacity and a reach that I still find surprising, and which may still linger in some quarters. Certainly, some American writers, working now in the inner cities, see the necessity to refute this, still see the necessity to refute this, as if it's an ongoing issue. Following from the social movements of the 60s and 70s, there was a further huge flowering of diverse, class-inclusive, psychoanalytically informed therapy projects, some of which I describe in my book and some of which I and I'm sure many people here have worked in. Work such as that and also in other contexts has successfully challenged these prejudices. It has also thrown light on what may be required of psychoanalysis and its practitioners to work fruitfully in working-class communities or with people from different class backgrounds, in terms of a necessary reflective understanding of this cross-class interface um, and their part in it. This is something which I suggest could be part of the training of analysts and therapists. 
and there's a lot to learn from what's written about working in um, working class <coughs> communities. There's also the question of access to trainings, what resources are needed, and what specifically the experiences are of those are of those from working class backgrounds on trainings, much of which surfaced in my research study. Apart from the upfront costs of courses, there is the necessity to do unpaid work as part of the training and also often, af- often afterwards, such as um, having to work in internships and honorary posts as a means to getting further work, which, as in the wider world, is clearly discriminatory in favour of those with a background of relative wealth. And this is an issue that's been taken up, or is being taken up. Where is that? No, okay. Um, this is an issue which has been taken up by the newly formed Union of Psychotherapists and Counselors, the PCU, um, which is uh, um, advocate, which has been joined to look at, has been formed to look at, amongst other things, the work conditions um, of um, therapists and counselors. This exclusiveness of access has seriously limited the legitimacy of psychoanalysis in the wider wider world. And this is especially important now when psychoanalytic work is under such negative pressure within the NHS and more widely. What is not in doubt, however, is that there has always been, and still is, a substantial body of analysts and therapists who are concerned with its exclusiveness and who find their own solutions to the contradictions of having to learn to earn their living, mainly from private practice, along with their wider political and ethical commitments. Many um, therapists and analysts do or have worked in public sectors of some kind and help sustain the innovative free or low-cost community projects, and maybe we will hear more about this in the discussion. I do think it's really important to know our own history in this respect, And one of my arguments is that these myriad and very diverse projects in public and third third sectors, if recognised, taught about and supported more, valued more, could add greatly to our psychoanalytic knowledge. Now, to turn um, to the question, um, which is a huge one, of how class impinges on and shapes the psyche, how it is embodied both consciously and unconsciously, and how it can inflect therapy relationships and manifest itself within the transference, counter-transference matrix. I think we're only just beginning to explore this, although I discovered more contemporary material about this than I had expected when I did the research for my book. I, su- I suggest that we can look at class as having layers of conscious and unconscious meaning encrypted in various identifications and disidentifications conscious or otherwise, and embedded and embodied in many ways in different versions of self and other. I think it's helpful to have a framework in which social status, social difference and social imaginaries are entwined with Oedipal and libidinal desires with psychic processes. Social forces can thus be given a dynamic equivalence with intrapsychic processes, although I'm not supposing that inevitably has to be the case, but it, it, it would, to adopt such an approach, would mark, and I think, an important advance um, in um, this whole area of understanding the social world in relation to psychoanalysis. 
Much of the psychosocial work that I read emphasises the salience of the intergenerational aspects of class, handed down through the family, often traumatically so, even or especially where class of origin is different from present-day status. And it is in understanding the intergenerational links, uh, intergenerational processes, we can make links between psychic and social processes. The psychodynamics of class, or what Diane Ray has called the psychic economy of class, are always relational, as I've said, although I would add never entirely so. This relationality and the salience of class markers, often embodied in voice, language and accent, body language, clothes, taste, style and so on, combined with the brute facts of inequalities, all mean that class and class difference is a fertile ground for anxieties, splitting, projections and disavowals of many kinds. And of course it is also in other arena at the ground for jokes and dramatic foils. Class is class difference that is. Class is something that we may be instantly and viscerally that may be instantly and viscerally apprehended in any encounter, sometimes unconsciously so, testifying to its embodied nature. The fault lines of class are also likely to show up in the transference, which can act like litmus paper in manifesting what is usually kept unspoken. I see the default positions of them and us, them and us in scare quotes, as the psychic underbelly of class, where connection, relationality, wanting to know and understanding seem foreclosed or abrogated with the corresponding emotions such as hate, contempt, despair, as perhaps my initial example um, illustrated. Or, as the psychoanalyst Muriel Diamond expressed it, alienation is the psychology of class. This default position of them and us, something we might consciously want to eschew, is testimony to the huge gulf, inequalities and divisions in social worlds that class involves, along with the many powerful emotions, defences and projections that it arouses, of which anger, shame and contempt surface most frequently in the literature. Class and class distinctions, however much we may want to resist this, do also, or can also, involve moral judgments and evaluations, which have powerful and deleterious emotional impacts. In one example in my research, the countertransferal counter-transferential impact of class contempt um, on a a therapist um, from working class background, which was expressed by an upper middle class patient towards her, um, traumatically um, re-stimulated all class wounds. Um, The patient um, demanded angrily, was she any good because she seemed quite working class? This illustrated both the powerfully injurious and continuing impact of earlier class experience and also the amount of psychic work needed to maintain an analytic position, which this therapist did with, um, rather than retaliate or collapse or become the useless therapist that she had been deemed. Another therapist from a working-class family spoke of lingering shame to do with her class background that had been very hard to tackle. Rationally, she said... She thought everybody is equal, but there was a lasting residue of feelings of inferiority that was still there. In the case of those who are more privileged economically, perhaps the entitled middle classes, this psychic underbelly of class can also operate. 
Whatever the conscious commitment to respect, equality, embracing of difference, still, as wider research indicates, and certainly was experienced within some of the therapy encounters in my study, there may also be disdain and distancy and a form of subliminal elitism. In more extreme cases, such as the class shaming of sections of the working classes that uh, has been widely documented, for example, Owen Jones and many other writers, there is disgust and hostility driven by a highly defended structure of certain forms of middle-class identity as not a supposedly despised working-class other. In the example I started with, the bringing of class into the therapy relationship had created an impasse, revealing a no-go area that very much came from me as a therapist. Some of the middle-class therapists in my research also reported impasses in their clinical work just at the point where class-related anger was articulated by patients who were working class. They too felt that this created a no-go area in the therapy, which they expressed as too much reality. In other words, something that couldn't be explored psychoanalytically, as if psychoanalysis came to a stop in the face of poverty, huge disparities of wealth and anger about this. Freud, um, uh, uh, in his letters to Jung, also considered that re- also um, argued that reality was, in quotes, too close to working-class servant girls and nurses that he was describing for them to be what he called useful psychoanalytic subjects uh, or to have what he also called use- useful fantasies. We can, he said, learn nothing from them. This and the many other extrusions of um, class experience that I do document in the book, has had negative effects down the years in who is seen as suitable for psychoanalysis and what psychoanalysis should concern itself with. This, I think, raises the question of how we listen psychoanalytically to class-inflected experiences and issues, to ourselves as well as to our patients, and in what ways our own class histories, as well as our particular analytic trainings, may create resistances to hearing and being able to work with the emotions this may involve. In one example from my research, a therapist from a working-class family said the following of her analyst, whom she greatly appreciated in many ways. This is a fairly long quote. Um, She said, So it was right in the room for me. He'd got that public schoolboy sort of charming, polite, blah-de-blah. I actually raised how I felt about being working-class and those feelings of inferiority and shame. And I felt it was one of those areas he didn't quite understand, because he'd hooked into the, you're all equal sort of thing, and I really need to value myself. He couldn't identify with the place where it was painful or the shame, so I told him that. He was a little bit defensive about it that made me feel, there's something about this you can't hear. What What might get in the way of such listening? In my first example for my own practice... I described how I was polaxed by my middle-class um, cu- cultural and other wealth being angrily, resentfully, and somewhat despairingly identified within the therapy relationship. And one of the disabling emotions I felt was shame, another was fear. It's not unco- uncommon when attempting to talk about class in cross-class contexts for some middle-class people to feel uncomfortable, inhibited, and ashamed. But rather than leading to withdrawal and the narcissistic dead end of middle-class guilt, I think we have to find ways in which this can be put to good use. And there are, of course, many practical ways in which this can happen. 
of which I hope my book is one. But of course, there are many other factors that may impede such listening, one of which um, the therapist that I last quoted also spotted. The mistaken, if well-meaning assumption that social differences shouldn't make a difference when it comes to psychic processes. And it is here that understanding the implicit assumptions of our theories is so important. How are we doing for time? Okay. Finally, the, uh, just, and very, very briefly, the internal class politics of the wider psychoanalytic field. Our profession is rife with divisions, splits, hierarchies, tribal pra- passions, claims of legi- legitimating authority, um, and claims to symbolic capital. Historically, there has been extensive debate within the profession, in both the UK and the US, as to these definitions and differences, especially between psychoanalysis and psychoanalytic psychotherapy, or between the latter and psychodynamic counselling. There are largely fruitless discussions about the criteria for distinction between uh, between these different um, forms of practice, Discussions which is carried on with no reference to the economic factors involved, floating free, in other words, of the materiality of class. I suggest that the forces driving these distinctions and those between pure and supposedly applied clinical work, that is short-term work, are part of the hierarchy whereby work outside long-term intensive private practice is seen as lesser, a form of symbolic violence that perpetuates internal class divisions. This is, of course, not to say um, that there are no important differences in what can be offered or taken up. Um, There are, and we often, all of us, work with those constraints. But the excess hierarchy of value originates in the same, that is promulgated there, um, originates in the same seemingly progressive 1918 speech that Freud gave, encouraging the development of free clinics, In this, he also drew a distinction between what he called the pure gold of psychoanalysis and um, what he deemed the copper alloy of psychotherapy. Thus, in one ambivalent stroke, he both embraced and then designated as lesser the effort effort to widen access to psychoanalytic therapy. So I think it's high time we drop this language with its notions of purity and dilution. Again, without ignoring the very real differences and possibilities that are contained in them. Um, And perhaps also we need to recognise that alloys may be more fit for many purposes than gold. (laughs) This history has also led to the lack of recognition and the absence of support, as I've said before, of all the work that does go on outside private practice or within less intensive forms of this, work which seldom finds itself in our journals or taught on our trainings. However, increasingly, as the elite psychoanalytic trainings are struggling to recruit, as more work carried out by therapists trained in in intensive work is in fact, in practice, done at a lesser frequency, these organisations are being forced to look outwards towards the wider field. And so the issue of the accessibility of psychoanalytic forms of therapy to working-class people needs to become, and maybe is beginning to, more part of the mainstream of psychoanalytic consciousness in the way it, um, it, to some extent, was once. Thanks.
you, Joanna. I think we're doing very well for time. Okay. Um, and that, that, was, that was brilliant. I mean, as you can hear from Joe's talk, this is an enormous subject which touches on um, all aspects of clinical work, but also the culture in which trainings and clinical practice is embodied. Um, before opening up questions to the floor, I, I thought I might ask you a question or two of my own. And actually, I, I wanted to pick up on uh, this address of Freud's that he gave in 1918, the Budapest address, um, as I think that, you know, this returning to Freud's writing to sort of hear in his own language some of his ambivalences and the ambiguities um, is really helpful. And for those, those of you that aren't familiar with this address, this is... Um, this is an address in which he talks about the lines of advance, the developments that he sees that will come with, um, with, with psychoanalysis in, in the, sort of the years and the decades following, following the speech. And he, has, he speaks about the conscience of society um, that needs to awake. And he's um, thinking about the opening up of the free clinics that you mentioned. Um, and, he, and he speaks about neurosis, and he is talking about neurosis. He's not talking about psychosis um, in this as being a public health concern on a par with other medical concerns. But this raises a problem for Freud, um, because he thinks that there will be new conditions that will need to be met in order to widen this access. Of course, he is thinking about the institutional conditions that will come from translating psychoanalytic practice from a private practice setting into a sort of a um, public access health clinic setting. But he's also thinking about what it means to offer psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic therapy to, um, to people from different part class backgrounds and working class and poorer backgrounds. And I just want to read a little bit of this to hit, so we can hear his, hear his language. Um, Freud writes that it is very probable that large-scale application of our therapy will compel us to alloy, as you said, the pure gold of analysis freely with the copper of direct suggestion and hypnotic influence. So that's Freud's sort of thinking about going back to what he would understand as pre-analytic modes of, um, of psychotherapy. And we can hear this very loaded language. It's very, very charged, and there's a lot of assumptions that come with it. And I'm wondering how this feeds into, and I'm picking up um, on an article written by um, a few years ago by a colleague of ours, uh, uh, Paul Gurney, um, about the neutrality of analytic neutrality and how that might have extra-clinical Functions. What it's serving to neutralise. What perhaps it's serving to naturalise. And I also, but I, uh, you know, I'm mindful that we might want to keep in um, keep in tension the use of it, the clinical benefits of it. Yes, the question of um, so-called analytic neutrality and also um, the um, uh, the blind screen or whatever it's called does come up sometimes. Um, uh, I always remember in, in one of my first jobs in a, in a city clinic, the supervisor there, who was very traditional, um, as we were struggling with various issues about who comes, and because, um, of course, there wasn't over-representation of middle-class patients, um, pronounced, um, or rather announced, that if you needed help, it didn't matter what, what colour or class you were, um, which... Uh, has always stuck in my mind as a sort of emblematic statement um, of uh, what uh, is somehow pronounced as um, a neutral position, but in fact, of course, is loaded um, with class difference. 
Um, and the problematic about neutrality is, of course, so-called neutrality, is that it is indeed a fiction. Um, and um, the problems come um, uh, in maintaining... Um, well, or rather, it is often shown to be a fiction, but it's still somehow the idea that neutrality can be um, absolutely um, sustained um, is a very powerful one. Um, I mean, I think it's quite a complicated issue, you know, what we actually, me- actually mean by neutrality, because um, apart from, if you like, its misuses, um, it is, and it is a characteristic, I think, of all psychoanalytic work, that we strive not to impose our own values and our own moral judgments um, on whoever or onto whoever we may be working with, and that we create a space where um, this some reflective space where this can be be looked at. Um, so, uh, and that is um, an attempt to create. I don't know whether neutral is the right word there, but anyhow, a space um, in which some of the sort of uh, intrusions of various whatever moral judgments or whatever may abound for that particular person um, can be perhaps at least temporarily lessened and other thinking can take place. Mm. So it, it serves, it does serve a useful purpose and I think um, one of the things that is familiar to sort of all counselling or psychotherapy practices is the sort of suspension of judgment and um, trying to try and sort of hold a more, hold a more neutral place. And, and also, I just add to that um, the idea of non-directive listening. Mm. That um, you know, we also strive not to um, impose goals for therapy or desirable ideas of desirable outcomes on our patients. And of course, that does very much differentiate <coughs> our psychoanalysis from um, uh, uh, a lot of, well, certainly CBT and a lot of other therapies. Should- which I sort of suppose um, in a psychoanalytic um, um, sort of mode leads me to wonder where, where the return of the repressed is in this. And um, I'm wondering whether this might come out in, um, in categories of diagnosis. So, um, I'm in particular I'm thinking about, and this is anecdotal um, really, but um, I know sort of, and maybe my colleagues from the psychosis therapy project might, might support some of my um, observations here that people from, um, that we see referred from more sort of deprived or working class backgrounds might receive more stigmatising or pathologising diagnoses. I'm thinking in particular of the really dreadful um, borderline um, sort of diagnosis of personality disorders, whereas people from more privileged backgrounds, it, there might be um, less stigmatising sort of labels accorded to them. I mean, do you have any... Any thoughts? Or? Yeah, I mean, the whole question of diagnosis and class um, bias in that, I haven't really um, gone very much into it. Um, but it is also one of the contexts of, of any discussion about class and therapy is, of course, that working class people tend to be heavily overrepresented in most psychiatric categories. Yes, and medicated. Um, maybe mm. anorexia is the one example where that's not the case. Um, but. Um, and, and there are lots of reasons why that might be so. Um, and there is a huge literature about that, really. Um, I don't know about borderline personality disorder in particular, um, but it is interesting what you're saying about um, that the, uh, what the free clinic, clinics found uh, as they developed was that they actually had to encompass a much greater range of um, 
symptoms, problems, issues, if you like, that a greater diversity of patients came than they had at that point in time been used to working with, with the mainly middle-class um, uh, bourgeois, if you like, patients that typify the early years of psychoanalysis. But I think other people might have something yes, to say about I think so. well, at this um, point, psychosis and borderline, <laughs> yeah, the psychosis project. Well, at this point, it would be really good. Um, we've got quite a bit of time left for um, questions and discussion from, from the floor. Um, Stefan, do you want to do the roving mic? So we really just want to throw it open and see where the conversation leads us. Yeah. Um, this gentleman at the back in the green. Yeah, I probably don't need a mic. Um, <laughs> you want a You're loud enough oh, already. Okay. Um, <laughs> Um, along with everybody else, obviously, I share one thing in common, that is I'm a member of the class. And I'm wondering, in terms of psychoanalytical discourse, uh, a, a word that I think you mentioned, actually, Joe, uh, a word that we use both in Marxist analysis as well as Freudian analysis is the word resistance. And I'm wondering if you detected, at the level of your own practice the ways in which resistance might be articulated vis-à-vis the different aspects of kind of class backgrounds and, and also uh, class discourse, because, of course, the language of class is just as important at one level. It's, I don't think working-class people have a less articulate relationship to their own consciousness than middle-class people do, but it's a very different relationship, I think. And I think resistance specifically can often be registered as aggression in, yeah. in yeah. working class speech and yeah. as something quite different, maybe argumentative in bourgeois speech. So I was just wondering if you noticed those kinds of class differences at the level of those interactions. Well, I can certainly recognise what you're talking about. Um, I think I might be a bit hesitant to make a generalisation, but um, I think it does raise the question which I did touch upon um, about anger and how that um, uh, can both be embraced and worked with um, in therapy situations. Um, I mean, I think uh, the wider idea of political resistance, if you like, um, is it's there, but it oft- doesn't often get articulated in those forms. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, It was lovely to hear you talking about your book again. It was a different angle from what I'd heard before. I just wanted to make a quick point and then ask a question. Um, The quick point was how right you are to say that this work is going on all the time, almost for, for anyone in the care industry, anyone in the NHS knows how hard it is for them to be able to show any adequate care and concern because of poverty and inequality and so on. And the, um, there's a blog called Surviving Work and a book that's come out now from Elizabeth, someone who is very good on that, I think. But my question was around, which I'm puzzling with a lot, is questions around denial and disavowal and resistance that psychoanalysts have shown in simply not noticing the obvious presence of class and before that, of course, as we know earlier, of gender and race and so on. And I'm wondering the extent to which we need to go into some sort of depth analysis or rather, because it's so common, it seems to be just our 
everyday cognitive processes, what used to be called cognitive dissonance. You know, we, we just notice the things that register with what we know and what we think. And so, in fact, different analysts will be noticing different things in line with what they already think. And you don't... You know, how much do we need a deep psychoanalytic explanation and how much is it just this everyday disavowal and denial that's going on all the time, every minute, as we're looking around noticing sort of what we want to notice and not seeing, you know, finding an immediate rationalisation. Mistakes were made but not by me, is how Carol Travis writes about it, using cognitive psychology. So I wondered what you think of that balance of everyday cognitive processes as against psychoanalytic explanations. Well, um, yes, denial and disavowal absolutely do abound in this field. Um, I tend to look at it, um, I, I think you can look at it in many ways. The thing I've most particularly uh, picked out is the conceptual and th- theoretical underpinnings of any kind of psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, which renders um, concerns of class and other social um, differences and aspects somehow peripheral to what is considered the main work of uh, working um, uh, psychodynamically or psychoanalytically. And part of that is, um, which I think is something that maybe Judith Butler and many other people have pointed out, is that there is the assumption of a a psyche outside power. Um, And this... um, uh, and this runs through all psychologies, basically, and it's a very deep split in our society. Um, uh, and it, certainly there are political dimensions to it. I think Adorno pointed out years ago that the split between psychology and sociology was itself a way of keeping people kind of um, ignorant of the social conditions under which they lived. And so there are many forms of this um, uh, sort of privileging of the individual and um, the psyche as described by psychoanalysis that um, can't readily accommodate um, what we, you know, all these other things that we might think are important. So um, then when you, you enter a, a psychoanalytic training, though you may very much want to um, talk about these things, be very concerned about them, as I've said, there are, very, there are not many ways in which the language comes easily. And also, it's often rendered um, as unanalytic. Um, there's one very striking example in the literature of an analyst in America. Um, she, she entitles her article, Peasant in the Analytic Chair. And um, in her long training analysis, like 10 years, even though she was very caught up with the difficulties of her class position and where she'd come from and everything, she never managed to talk about it in analysis. And it wasn't until she went and had a second analysis that um, she understood why. And part of that was to do, she thought, with the framework of the analytic institution that both she and her therapist, Hanlis, were embedded in. But of course, you know, there may also be other reasons which, where a psychoanalytic explanation might be um, more use, I mean, have some application, which is actually dealing with the many emotions that your class position, whether it's working class or middle class or upper class, um, does, does throw up, um, and which um, don't often find, um, except maybe in expressions, um, uh, sort of hostile expressions, if you like, ways of um, being examined. 
Um, oh gosh, lots of questions. Okay, David, um, can you just put your hands up again? Okay, there, there's a lady at the back who would like a question. We're going to take, um, if we could take a block of questions maybe here, and then we'll come back to your question there. Okay. Lady at the back with her hand up at the moment. Hi. Uh, so it's a bit late, so sorry if you already addressed this. Um, I just wondered about uh, the ways in which you thought class intersected with uh, race specifically in the therapy room, particularly in this sort of moment, this like post-Brexit, post-Trump moment of rife racism and, and xenophobia. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, did, I did very briefly mention that it is one aspect of class that it, it always and necessarily intersects a lot of factors, and certainly race, I think, is the met, uh, it really stands out. Um, and when I did my research, though I wasn't looking for that, I was just trying to focus on class, all sorts of examples popped up in, uh, in what people were talking about, where class and race were absolutely entwined. And I think it's a, you know, partly a question of recognising the entwining, the entwining that goes on, I mean, throughout people's lives, but also not conflating them. Thank you. Okay, can we take three questions here? We're if there are lots of questions, it's perhaps easier if we take them in, in blocks. So if you could ask three questions, and then that gives Joe a chance to respond. Well, I have to remember what they are. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'll try and find a way to word it. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you. I found it really interesting, your talk. Um, I, I kind of wanted to ask your advice, because I feel like I'm, I've been quite young training up, as well as um, not having much money, having to work really hard, and working for... I work for a small charity to work with young people experiencing high levels of poverty. But I feel like I have to almost become the thing I'm rebelling against, um, so I have to become experienced and privileged in order to challenge these things. And so I guess I kind of wanted to ask your advice on how I can challenge things a bit more now in the position that I'm in. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about what kind of um, strategies and tactics you use in the therapy room to address some of the issues that you've discussed today. Thank you. Um, my question might be slightly different. Um, I was wondering whether we've spoken a bit about the way that the kind of class positions of both the analyst and the analysand affect the relationship. But I was wondering if maybe there's a way in which the very structure of the psychoanalytic relationship is classed. And particularly I was thinking about the contractual nature of it. And that, I mean, historically what a contract is is an agreement between free, autonomous and traditionally moneyed agents who are able to kind of give away certain rights, privileges. Um, and whether or not the very nature of the contractual relationship kind of forces a class dimension into the psychoanalytic relationship. And I was also thinking about, in the question of the relationship between neurosis and psychosis, the way that the ability to maintain the contract has also been historically a dividing line for what counts as neurotic or psychotic. So I was wondering if you looked into that at all. <laughs> Sorry. Challenging. Yes. I didn't need your help here. Um, as regards to first, I'm very glad you spoke, and you know, I do think what happens on trainings is absolutely key to the um, reproduction of psychoanalytic culture. Um, so I'm always very, very interested in what is being conveyed and taught. Um, um, I think 
uh, Paul Gurney, who's here, um, raised the question of can you be a psychoanalyst without being uh, symbolically middle class? I think that's how he put it. Um, and I think maybe that's part of what you're talking about, um, that you, you are seen or have to perform um, a certain sort of authoritative, perhaps, um, role that maybe you don't, you don't feel or whatever, or even if you did, uh, there's problems about it. Um, and I suppose, in a way... Um, uh, the only way through these things is, is actually discussion, you know, and opening up um, class, class dialogues um, in whatever um, place you happen to be working. Um, tactics in therapy. Quite honestly, I don't think anything is needed special that is um, beyond what, you know, all the um, usual ways that we have in working um, psychoanalytically, that's to say. Um, I suppose the the main thing is to be able to notice our own resistances, our own difficulties with the material that is coming our way um, and to try and understand what might be difficult to really embrace that. So I, mean, I suppose I'm saying the problem is more on the side of the analyst than of the patient. Um, I'm not actually taking a Lacanian position there, but I know it sounds like it. Um, <laughs> but... Um, but, I mean, I think there is a further question, not so much about the whole way in which the whole apparatus of the consulting room, of um, coming at certain times, it finishes at certain times, the furniture, the dress, the language, um, uh, all those endless things which I'm sure of, which con- convey certain class dimensions. Um, are actually present in any therapy encounter, especially where there is a significant class difference. So it may be that sometimes it's important to be able to bring that in. You you know, that sometimes I think, especially if there's an impasse, it's up to the therapist not just to wait passively, but to actually perhaps mention as a possibility some of these things. Um, One of them um, has a lovely example of how, which I'd never thought of, of how um, the various expressions can have such a class loading. Um, Two weeks ago, I was at the BPC um, Psychotherapy Now conference, and I was in a a panel discussion with Lindsay Hanley, whose book, Respectable, um, is a a really um, brilliant uh, account of her uh, her socially... Uh, mobile trajectory and all the difficulties about that, but very much put in terms of cultural issues. Anyhow, um, instead of... She was talking about her own experience of uh, being um, an analytic patient, and instead of talking about the couch, she talked about the analytic settee, um, something which I'd never thought about, but which instantly (laughs) nails it as to um, what maybe... um, Conveyed, you know, in 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 micro moments. Um, the contractual nature. Um, I I'm not, I'm not really sure quite what you're getting at there. Or, or um, could you be a bit more specific? Like, is there an is there an example you have in mind? Um, I don't have an example in mind. Um, I suppose just. What I was trying to explore was that regardless of the um, 
of the kind of psychic positions of those involved, the analyst or the analyzand, maybe there's something about the actual kind of structural nature of the relationship based as it is on the idea of a contract that assumes a, effectively assumes a middle-class agent because it is middle-class agents traditionally who are in contractual relationships and it assumes a kind of equality of positions of, and, and that might be a very difficult thing for psychoanalysis to overcome because it's so central to the practice. I guess that's what I was trying to explore. Yeah, you mean in shared, in shared assumptions, which might not be a shared, about... Um, what the nature of this relationship is and what the terms of it are. Yes, um, I think that's where um, maybe Barry wants to come in there, but I think that's also where the whole question of psychoanalyst as worker comes up as well. Uh, You know, the the lack of, um, you know, for example, uh, one prime example is all therapists and analysts do charge for missed sessions, I mean, and there are lots of good reasons. Uh, But what the reason that the um, that is seldom stated is that that, uh, that we don't wish to work on zero hours contracts um, and of course um, to some people it's outrageous I, I, it's a bit loud. I was wondering whether you're asking um, does, does psychoanalysis in, inherently in the way it is practiced reproduce bourgeois or middle class social values and norms? The inherently structurally within the relationship? Yeah, I suppose. And I suppose, I mean, of course that is going to be the case within private practice, but um, we've, there are other ways of practicing psychoanalysis. We've heard historically about some of the free clinics, the Poly Clinic in Berlin, um, Red Vienna uh, as well, which was set up, and some other free psycho, psychotherapy initiatives, um, which, which are, still, are still running, which, which offer no charge or very, very low cost. Perhaps there is a question beyond that as well about which was raised by I think uh, the the first question maybe about um, the nature of the relationships, the expectations within the consulting room and within the analytic relationship. Perhaps it, is that the sort of thing that you maybe had in mind? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. Hmm. And because it's not about money necessarily, because class and money don't correlate. Necessarily, no. Not necessarily. Hmm. Um, but it's more about the expectations and the kind of sociability of what the relationship is like. Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think we could pursue that. I mean, there's so much to be said about everything, but there's so many questions. There's a lady over here who's been waiting very patiently. Thank you very much. I was fascinated by the spatialized language that you use, Um, if I the spatialized language that you use, not only in a title uh, when you say uh, landscapes, but everywhere and nowhere that you wanted to use, and also uh, the word gulfs that you use to refer to class. So I was wondering if um, you have examples or would like to expand more on situations in your research in which issues of class uh, stood out or were raised by the patient or the analysts you you talked to um, through issues of place, either in the, uh, in, in the tangible aspect or the symbolic? Uh, yeah. Um, well, I think one of the things that came out of it... Um, was the issue of taking up space in the social world and people's sense of entitlement about that or of having a voice. 
Uh, that was said quite a lot, really. Um, um, I don't think I've got much to add beyond that, but um, space in the social world and space within the consulting room is, you know, fundamental. Can we? Are there any more? Any further questions? Um, there's a lady here at the front. Thank you, um, and thanks very much, Joe. It was really interesting. Thank you. But um, I just want to make a point in relation to what we've been talking about. I worked in a really, really supportive environment, and one of the things that happened was that myself and the director, I was a deputy, went into an analytical relationship with someone who... Uh, well, anyway, it was very good very, very in terms of management, how these two people, myself and my boss, absolutely sort of were leaders and all of those things and how we managed the work of, of 130 staff. But what happened for me was I felt so valued being offered that, that place to go and discuss those things with an analyst. It was... It, I just felt incredibly valued and then felt able to take up other sort of training that was being offered to me, whereas I'd been quite hesitant to do that. I just thought I was innately a good person with people, but I didn't really think I needed a lot of work. I needed a lot of work, and it was brilliant, and it was I felt very valued. Thank you. Yeah, that's a lovely example. Thank you, um, Cathy. Um, of you know what psychoanalysis positively can contribute to um, uh, working with class, and we obviously more, more broadly than that. Um, but of course, it has to be done well. It can you know there are many examples of how um, in, you know where psychoanalysis betrays itself really and falls down. Um, and I I would think the often reported greater um, uh, dropout from various clinics um, or no-shows of working-class people. Um, maybe that's got something to do with that, that what, um, apart from maybe other difficulties, more material difficulties, that may also be to do with um, their experience of being in that relationship that, where they haven't felt adequately recognised or able to talk in... Um, uh, where the, the class gulf of it exists um, was not, in a sense, crossed in a facilitated, helpful way. Um, yeah. Uh, Paul. Um, yes, I'm the Paul Gurney who's been mentioned a couple of times already, so I feel I should speak him up. at yeah. some point. Um, and there's so much to pick up on, so much. You know, we could be here for a weekend, couldn't we, really? But um, I think I wanted to just return to the idea of what's an appropriate stance on the part of the therapist and how class-specific that might be. And I remember, Joe, when you were mentioning the idea of we can work with anger, and what about the therapist's anger? And I think one of the things for me, and I'm not proud of it, but is that I get angry uh, in sessions with clients and we have rows sometimes. And it can be often, you know, quite difficult. I'm not saying it's a great thing. Um, 
but it's part of the process sometimes. And for me, uh, you know, because of maybe my character flaws, maybe because of my class origins, part and parcel of coming to see me as a therapist. And I suppose I wonder about, you, you know, how, you know, anger on the part of the therapist or, or more broadly, what is supposedly a therapeutic stance or use the word analytic stance on the part of the therapist um, can be. Then also thinking about the idea that you touched on about class differential psychiatric diagnoses. I've often thought about myself and thought, oh, you know, I'm a bit borderline-y. You know, I can be quite kind of ranty and, you know, retaliatory, as which is a term you mentioned. And then it's only actually fairly recently that I thought, well, maybe that's got something to do with my um, class position as well. I mean, all sorts of other things like my masculinity, my family history, you know, I'm not, and I'm not trying to excuse myself, more to open that up as a, as a possible site for discussion. Uh, yeah. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> yeah. Um... I think your question probably links to the question from the guy um, behind you, which I felt I didn't really address enough about resistance um, uh, and um, resistance, if you like, anger of a um, class nature. Um, I think there may well be something about the, um, the strive for containment, discreetness, uh, and all the rest of it, that does perhaps inhibit um, expressions of anger um, in a, um, for some therapists. I'm probably talking about myself here. Um, uh, or who are afraid of anger. I mean, certainly um, spectres of the righteously angry working class person can arise in your mind when you know, you're being accused of not understanding because you're middle class and all the rest of it. Um, um, but I mean, I don't, you know, I suppose I work in a way that I don't rule anything in or out within limits. Um, um, and I mean, there is a, I suppose there is a kind of um, social character or um, imaginary, if you like, of the angry working class um, man or woman. Um, but of course, uh, uh, um, um, which may or may not relate to various realities. Um, but, of course, you know, we absolutely have to find a place for what you might call justifiable anger um, and also for, um, uh, for envy uh, and not patho pathologise that. Just a few. There, there, there's two questions. There's a question here at the front from Andy's question at the back. But, uh, uh, Paul, I was just wondering whether you were sort of drawing... Is, is there something rather sanitising about... The, the analytic, the psychoanalytic milieu, maybe, or something that sort of it has to exclude in order to. Uh, were you were you getting at something like that, perhaps, or? Yeah. Sorry, we'll come to you in a moment. Andy, recording, yeah. Um, I don't think I was wanting to make a generalisation. Okay. Really, it was more a, a plea for a measure of abnormality, if you like, or, <laughs> or a plea for diversity, yeah. if you like. Yeah, yeah um, sure. Yeah, not, not wanting to generalise about anyone else's practice or, or approach. No. No. OK. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Hello, thank Hi. you. Um, one of the things, we've spoken about class and money, class and socioeconomics, politi 
politics, class and education and knowledge, um, which psychoanalysis has a lot to do with knowledge and who has knowledge in the room, and, and I suppose question of who is the expert. So I think that there are better and worse ways of, I, I suppose I am quite judgmental in this, um, in terms of how the analyst sees themselves in relation to knowledge and, and access to reality, for example. Access to reality meaning? Well, I think that <laughs> psychoanalysis can be practiced in a, in, a, in a way that is sort of a masterful um, narrative mm. and and that the the mistaken idea that the that knowledge and um, that knowledge is with the analyst in fact the ex who is the expert in the room yes i think that that dynamic um, does tend to cut across cl class but of course um, uh, because of um, the unequal distribution of cultural capital in our society. That's something that working class people are more likely to be in, perhaps intimidated by. Or, um, But, I mean, the fact is that in order to enter the, the um, trainings, for example, you do need a degree of cultural capital, I mean, education, in other words. Um, uh, um, but the question of the power of the analyst in that sense um, is an abiding one. It has... It maybe has class dimensions, but it goes much further than that. There's a question at the back, but I, I mean... I suppose what I'm, what I'm getting at is that in terms of engaging with this question in the consulting room, it's really crucial to, to think about um, the, the patient as the expert, that this in some way cuts, cuts across... I mean, it doesn't... It doesn't all these sort of reality... The, um, factors of of who has access to the consulting room to begin with um, it doesn't it doesn't solve that but um, I don't well I, I mean I think you know uh, it's, um, uh, there are more or less democratic conceptions of what goes on in therapy and certainly I would go for a more democratic one um, in which it, it's seen as a mutual process um, uh, uh, and uh, rather than one person um, conveying knowledge to another, but I don't. I doesn't mean I don't think that you know experience is really important here. Um, you know, we we may well be able to suggest things that have not been thought about. Um, this question right at the back, all the way to the back. <laughs> oh hi. Um, I, I feel slight trepidation talking about this because I'm, I'm sort of going to suggest that one of, one of the things that some patients come for is precisely our cultural capital. That people who, I mean, I'm thinking of a particular person who's had the most, um, uh, <laughs> you know, was very deprived in terms of his, his parenting of wisdom and cultural capital um, it what the the huge asset that I offered was precisely that, and um, I'm not disagreeing with the idea that also that I learnt from him. I mean that I that I learnt about the diff the diff our different circumstances and what it's like not to 
to. So he came the first day he came. He he, he brought a tape recorder, and of course, because he'd made an assumption. I mean, he'd made completely different assumptions about what what would be possible and what would go on, and he was going to give it to his wife so that she would know that he hadn't talked about her. Um, and I, I suppose what I'm what I'm saying, the the process of the therapy, which took about twenty years, ended up with him, if you like, embodying. A, a very different position. He became a Mason, a Freemason, after having um, <laughs> a left school at f- 15 and made you know, his, 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 his girlfriend pregnant at 15. So, I mean, what I'm saying is there's some, there was a process of, of um, accruing something that he valued. Mm. Yes. I think, again, that's a question of how we share what we might think we know in some, hopefully not too um, uh, elitist way. Before we... um, There's a question... There's a lady here. But I just want to... Because there's been a couple of questions about cultural capital, and I suppose I just want to make my own point about cultural capital, really, which is there seems to be the implicit assumption that there is a... um, there's a naturalisation of cultural capital, that it is just the case that some, some cultural expressions or forms are better than or more valuable than other forms, that classical music is, more, is better than pop music, that some sorts of forms of socialising are better than others. And um, so I would just be sort of sceptical about... Of course, people can come to us for that expression of sort of cultural capital. But I wouldn't, I, I, I'd be, I just want to be hesitant around sort of distributing it in a hierarchical or stratified sort of, sort of way. I, I was picking up the term cultural capital, but I would say, you know, if, 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 if your father bites on someone's ear when he was at him, um, you know... <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> um, <laughs> Hi. So I was interested in thinking about how psychoanalysis can uh, aid a conversation about class in a specifically what I would call like in neoliberalism in, or like an accelerated capitalism, which I think is very much kind of transforming from something like economic and labour relations into forms of subjectivity and how capitalism now um, really forms into subjectivity in that we're very much encouraged to think of ourselves as individuals in very new ways that are specific. Um, and I feel like in this... Uh, in this neoliberal environment, um, through this hyper-individuality, class becomes uh, diluted as a sort of conceptual topic because we're sort of thought of as being almost these free agents, but actually desires, fantasy and enjoyment are still sort of within a bourgeois paradigm that somehow get trickled down. And so these aspects of subjectivity are somehow still uh, come from a hegemonic space. 
uh, despite us all kind of being encouraged to think of ourselves as individuals and how that might like specifically uh, create difficulties for working class people when these desires are bourgeois and dominant in this way but within an environment that proposes that we're all kind of individuals uh, that makes sense so it's a bit of a convoluted uh, <laughs> comment slash question yeah. um, I do think and I say this in my book that um, while some of the values of psychoanalysis go against those of neoliberalism like taking time um, reflexiveness uh, be, having the space to think about things in um, a sufficiently complex way, not being um, very goal-driven or having definite uh, <coughs> ends in view. I mean, um, it, I think it is true that the, there is a danger that the psycho, psychoanalytic notion of the individual um, in its emphasis on agency um, and... Um, uh, the encouraging of that, in a way, which, of course, you know, any one person in any one life can be absolutely vital, but it does have the danger of seeming to align itself too much to the neoliberal concept of a, um, the entre- entrepreneurial self. Mm-hmm. I think that is a distinct danger, and that's why, as I said earlier, um, it's so important that we understand the uh, the underpinnings of our theories. In, in those terms, you know, how, how um, uh, the psyche is conceived of as somehow outside, um, or, or, well, that social influences are only somehow overlaid on an already existing psyche. Um, can I could I just, oh, sorry, the you question. Can't, can't no, 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 go no, on, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I thought there wasn't a question, but there is, yeah. No? Okay, what I wanted to say was um, it's all been absolutely fascinating what people have said and um, I'm so pleased that there is this amount of interest. Um, uh, what, what I notice about the discussion actually is that very little or nothing and maybe it's, it's so complex but has come up about people's experiences of working in um, free or low cost clinics of various kinds or indeed in the NHS. Um, uh, and um, how they feel the psychoanalysis of their trainings um, uh, supports or doesn't support them in that. Um, but maybe it, um, it's a discussion for another day. You know, I think there's, there's a huge variety of low-cost clinics, um, both historically and now. And, um, but, of course, apart from the um, seriously underfunded and precarious nature of them, which, in a way reproduces the conditions of the people that they want to access. Um, but, but I don't think there's been enough, uh, if you like, professional interest in what may be learned from, from that. And, and it's striking to me that the early left psychoanalysts who we've talked about, they were absolutely um, clear that um, what they're doing was psychoanalysis and that it found a... And the, that kind of the workings of the clinic were widely reported in the psychoanalytic journals of the day, including the International Journal. But none of that happens now, and I think there's a, a real place for, uh, um, uh, for, for encouraging and supporting that.
We've got time for one more question. One, yes, one, one more question. Hello. Um, funnily enough, I've worked in both low-cost counselling and, in, and I, at present, work in the NHS. But I work for CAM, so it's more like the, the adolescent part. In terms of how useful psychotherapy is, it's really useful, I think, for the members of my team for me to reflect on things psychodynamically. But the senior management, really, we are very, very restricted. It's like, right, well, there's no long-term psychotherapy anymore, so when they come in and out of inpatient, just crack out something else. I was really interested that you said that with psychoanalysis, you don't want to have any goal-orientated thing. I suppose the contract I have with these young people is in a care plan and I really make that as collaborative as I can. But the restrictions in the NHS, you've got no chance of saying, well, we'll just work for five years. Um, (laughs) Arguably, I have flown under the radar with a few clients and I have worked with them for maybe like 18 months. And there's, there's just such a massive difference. I think there's a big argument for the peanuts it would cost them for me to see that child weekly as opposed to an inpatient um, referral, which is, honestly, it's hundreds of thousands of pounds. Mm. So I don't know how I raise that somewhere. It's been nice to say that, because I I think I've been a bit like, well, I'm not sure where I'm supposed to put that. Um, But, yes, I feel very restricted in the NHS. There's there's no place for long-term psychoanalysis. And I don't... And I think that goes much further up um, for for political reasons and things like that. Well, I think it's a political matter partly that, you know, as a a whole profession, we need to be able to make the case for the value, both uh, the financial value and also the human value of more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic work. Um, I mean, the umbrella organisations are trying to do something where nothing... That wasn't happening a few years ago in relation to giving evidence to Parliament, things like that. But it's it's a matter of having um, a sustained campaign involving lots of people. You you know, individuals on their own can't really fight um, the increasing uh, pressures, you know, in the NHS or otherwise. People just get demoralised. Okay, I think um, we we are out of we are out of time. Um, this has been a fascinating discussion. I mean, there's so much more to be said on every single aspect of this. Um, could you just um, you know a round of applause for Joe and. Thank you. Thank you.